0: We're continuing in the uh, book of Ephesians, and we are in chapter 3, looking at Paul's uh, prayer, uh, found in verses 14 through 19, and then the doxology that uh, follows in 20 and 21. There are two prayers uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, the first found at the end of the first chapter, in which Paul uh, really prays that we might know the power that is... uh, uh, at work in us that God has given to us as a resource, and uh, and this prayer, which is basically a prayer, not that we would know about it, but that we would actually use it, we take it up and do it, and uh, it's a, it's a quite quite a wonderful prayer. I'm going to read the entire thing, including the doxology, and then we will focus primarily on verses 16 and the first half of 17. Paul writes. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, once again we seek your understanding of this text so that our lives might be, by your grace, more perfectly conformed to the way you would call us to live, that we might exhibit the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives to those around us who are so needy and wanting. We pray that understanding this text might lead us just a little bit closer to that. Help us, Father, to open ourselves to what it is you might want us to know, to do, to believe, and in these things to trust you that you will work out a wonderful thing through us as well as in us. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and for his sake we pray. Amen. Uh, Fritz Chrysler was a uh, a world-famous violinist, and uh, he was also a very generous man. Made a lot of money. He was uh, world-renowned, and uh, yet he was uh, so uh, generous with his money, he just gave it away. And... uh, one day he uh, happened to come across a violin that was uh, of exceptional quality. The problem was he didn't have any money to buy it because he'd already given most of his money away. But he asked the guy anyway uh, how much he wanted and he shook his head and realized he couldn't afford it and, and went off. But he made it a name that day to begin to, uh, to save for that violin and, and when he figured he had enough money he went back and he found the man and he said, um, you know, came back and I want to buy you that violin and uh, the man says oh I'm sorry he says I don't have it anymore he said I uh, actually I just sold it to a collector and uh, Chrysler says well can you give me his name and address I want to I want to track this thing down and see if he'll sell it to me so the guy gave it to him and uh, he tracked the man down and he asked if he uh, were willing to sell it and the man said "Uh, no he said no it's become my prized possession and in fact I don't Anticipate? I will ever sell it. Well, Chrysler was 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 crushed because he began to set his hopes on it. Then an idea came across his mind. He says to the guy, he says, "Well, do you mind if I if I just play it one last time before it's consigned to silence?" And the guy said, "Oh, okay." And uh, he brought the violin out and handed it to Chrysler. Uh, Chrysler played such a beautiful emotional tune that the man was just smitten and he suddenly realized that he couldn't he couldn't keep that violin any longer and he he turns to Chrysler and he says I have no right to keep it to myself he says he says take it into the world and let people hear it and of course Chrysler was glad to do just that but one of the most beautiful things in the world is a person who is fully indwelled and uh, and, and, um, and demonstrates the reality of Jesus Christ to the world. Um, and yet, as, uh, as one of the prayers this morning uh, so pointedly uh, made, lots of people don't feel that way. We know we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We know we're believers. But at the same time, we wonder, where is that radiance? Where is the... Where's that thing that people see in me that draw them to Jesus Christ? When was the last time somebody came to me and asked me to give a reason for the hope that is within me? And we can't remember that far back. And it bothers us. Paul wants us to make sure that none of us find ourselves in that position. And he wants us above everything else to display Christ in a real way and in a powerful way, to the world around us. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul really has been laying out all the resources and basic truths about the Christian life. And he really says God has given us an unlimited amount of resources in this life. In fact, he calls them every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here Paul urges us to really to believe that, to take it up, and to live it. But that's not easy. Last week we saw that what is required in order to do that is to know more deeply the love of Christ for us because it is that that allows us to overcome sin and temptation and actually to also, on the positive side, live in a manner that really demonstrates the reality of Christ in a soul. And Paul continues that same theme here. He wants us to experience the power of gods of Christ's indwelling presence, so that others may see and believe. Now we're going to look at just, uh, really, uh, three phrases, right? Two of them in verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17. And yet in each one, Paul really, he invokes a different person of the Trinity. He does it uh, very deliberately, but also very tactfully. And uh, and it's a wonderful uh, thing to just be aware of as he goes through it. Well, we'll look at this now. Paul's prayer for us to have the power of Christ's indwelling presence in us begins with his praying that God the Father would grant us, quote, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Now, most of us don't think about the word grant. But if you've got any kids in school, especially in college, grants are really nice. Okay? They're free money. Okay? The government or a scholarship program gives your child or gives the school actually money in your child's name so that you don't have to pay it and they don't have to pay it. So it's free. There's nothing you have to do to to, to do it except to ask for it and it's granted. Well, in the same way we simply ask for and we receive the granting of God's kindness to us, the riches of his glory. And so just like the, the uh, um, penitent at the, at the wall crying out to God, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God grants that mercy. And when we need strength, and when we need wisdom, and then when we need whatever it is, God's granting of these things comes to us as a free gift. But he says that he does it according to the riches of his glory. Now, those two little words, according to, are far more significant than you might think. See, a millionaire, for instance, can give either according to or out of his riches. If a millionaire gives, say, 50 or 100 bucks, he's giving out of his riches. If he gives, say, 100,000 out of his million, he's giving according to. In other words the fact that he has a lot of money means that he has to give a lot more in order to give according to. You can be really chintzy and just give, you know, as if uh, you can give out of. But if you give sacrificially, if you give out of your abundance, you just want to give, it's according to. And the stunning thing is, is that Paul says, I'm asking God to give according to his glory the things that you need, and what is the glory of God? But the fullness and the richness of His person, in all of its radiance, in all of its majesty, in all of its holiness and His purity, in His justice, God in the totality of His being. He is weighty. He is majestic. We cannot conceive of how wonderful he is. And it is, it is this that he says, I want this, this great God to give this blessing to you according to his majesty, his infinity, his eternity. This is a bold and confident prayer, if you ask me. I mean, Paul really knew his God. It reminds me of the, uh, the prayer that uh, Martin Luther prayed. In 1540, his his friend and colleague, Frederick Myconius, was sick, sick unto death. And Myconius wrote Luther a letter, uh, basically saying goodbye, his farewell. And when Luther received it, he immediately replied with these words to Myconius. He says, I command you in the name of God to live, because I still have need of you in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying, this is my will, and my will be done, because I seek to glorify the name of God. Now, we all know that it was, it was Luther who said, sin boldly. I mean, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. Now, Luther's not sinning in all of this, but he had an enormous confidence in God. Now, these words, of course, seem insensitive to us. We, we just we don't have the guts to pray like that, most of us, except in the most extraneous circumstances. But God apparently honored it, because Myconius, even though he was already unable to speak when he got the letter from Luther, recovered, recovered and served Luther for another six years and died two months after Luther did. God is rich in mercy, and he does give according to his glory. And that is why Paul and Luther and you and I can also pray with the same kind of confidence and boldness that we see here. Well, Paul now continues, and he asks that this God who is giving out of the richness of his glory, quote, that we might be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now it's important that we ask what is the inner man because sometimes there's confusion, some people don't even know they have it. Okay? Scripture presents the Christian as a as a combination of both an inner and an outer person, if you will. In 2 Corinthians 4:16, Paul says, "Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And in the text we read in Romans 7, we see that there's an, this incredible struggle taking place in Paul as he is trying to obey the law of God. And he, he recognizes that, there's, that a certain part of him seems to be controlled by evil. And yet there's also a part of him that that responds to God's law and wishes to to do good. Acknowledges that it's right and true. Then he says, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, what we might call the outer man. So there are two men, if you were, in him an inner man and an outer man, and the same is true for every Christian. Now, obviously, there's a difference between the two. What's most important is that we understand, and it's, this is really critical if you've never thought about it before, but the inner man is that part of us that has been created by God in that moment that we call regeneration. It was something that never existed before and then came into being by the word of his power. It is what makes us Christian. And it is, if you will, the the spiritual part of us in which the innermost part of our being hears, responds, knows to, loves, and wants to obey God's word. It is that part that he himself has created and that will continue to grow by his grace and to mature Now the strengthening of the inner man, because he's saying this inner man is weak, and we'll look at that in a moment, says that the strengthening must take place through all the constituent parts of our being, primarily the mind, the heart, and the will. And we just think about it, okay? Think about how weak your mind is. Not not feeble in terms of not being able to remember things or you know put two and two together and get four. I'm not talking about that. But how often you're assailed by, by doubts. How, how often you're troubled by evil or wandering thoughts. How many times your, your mind just goes where you don't want it to go. Or your heart. How often your heart is discouraged or depressed, or, uh, overcome with fears and forebodings. How often it finds its, its love going out to material possessions or towards oneself rather than towards the things of God and those around us. And our will. Is our will not feeble and resolute as well? I mean, my goodness. How many times do you resolve to do something and then don't do it? You know, you're, you're, you're gripped you grip with with how right it is and, and, and the passion rises up and you determine, I'm going to do that or I'm not going to do that, whatever it happens to be. And the next day, it's like it never happened. It's like you never had that thought. It's like your heart was never moved. See, our experience confirms, doesn't it, both the fact that the inner man exists, we've, we've, we've heard his voice, we know the sound of it. And at the same time, we know how weak he is. And it is this inner man that, that Paul says, God needs to strengthen by the working of his Holy Spirit. And there are good reasons for that. One is the fact that we have an enemy Scriptures tell us the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have an enemy who absolutely hates us, just as he hates God. He is at war with us and seeking to destroy us, to tear us down, to make us ineffective, to do whatever he can to keep us both from the joy of serving God and doing so effectively for the pleasure of God. As a matter of fact, this is so important that Paul takes the whole last part of the book, in chapter 6, to talk about it. And he begins there by saying, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay? point is, he's saying, it's not the outer man that's really the issue here. That's not the real problem. He says, the real problem is that we struggle against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Who is sufficient for this? the power of the evil one is not only great he is subtle he is cunning he knows us he can transform himself into an angel of light he can present to us things that are near truth but not truth and he can convince us he can persuade us he can argue with us he can put up he can put up uh, the quote scriptures he can reason with us he can do all these things that sort of draw us off track and then snares us. And he is good. He is really good. And I dare say most of us don't know how many times we've been snared. We've been caught more times than we know. And it's only the kindness of God that has released us. So there's no more powerful need for us to be strengthened than the fact that we have just this kind of enemy. But there is another reason that we need to be strengthened and it lies at the other end of the spectrum and that is the fact that what Paul is praying for us here is so great and so wonderful that if our inner man is not strengthened it might shatter us in fact what Paul says is that I want you to experience the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ more than that he says I want you to be listen to these words Filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, what does that mean? Whatever it means, it's more than I'm experiencing right now, and it's more than you're experiencing right now. But this is Paul's prayer for us. This is what he wants the believers in Ephesus and uh, in in the surrounding areas, people who have been born again, people who were you know, indwelled by the Holy Spirit just as you and I are. But he's saying, I want you to have something remarkably more than you have. Well, the next thing that Paul comes to is really quite wonderful. He introduces the purpose clause. He says, I want you to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit of God so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now I really want to approach this carefully because this, this whole idea that God wants to do something more in us is, I don't want it to be misconstrued as a second blessing, but neither do I want to just sort of dismiss it as if what we have right now is all there is. Because Paul apparently says it's not. Right? If what I've just said, the fact that he is writing to men and women who are born again, men and women who are already indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, and he says, I want you to be strengthened so that you can have this, he is asking and expecting God to do something more to normal, everyday people like you and me. What is that? Well, he puts it in these words. He says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, there's there's a fullness of that experience of Christ, not just kind of knowing he's there, but experiencing him. You can know electricity exists, you can experience it when you put your finger in the socket. There's a difference between knowing and experiencing. And here he's, he's speaking specifically about experiencing something more of the reality of Christ in our lives. And he says it happens through faith. Now we know Paul well enough, know James as well, who basically say the same thing, and that is that you know faith isn't just a sort of passive believe it, and it, you know, somehow mystically comes to be. No, as a matter of fact, faith, faith really requires activity, effort. As a matter of fact, if we go to Hebrews chapter 11, we see an entire chapter devoted to describing faith in just that way. As active, as dedicated, as moving in a direction, as attempting something. And it's all summed up very nicely in verse 13 of that chapter. The writer of Hebrews says, All these died in faith, without having received the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now there are a few things to note about what he says here. First, is that these these people saw these promises. These men and women of God heard the word of God to them and they embraced it. In other words, they were, they were people living in their day just like you and I live in mine, our day. And they, they received a word from God about something. And it was very different. It was very special. It was spiritual, if you will. And they saw it. They heard it. They knew it was real. In the same way, the same kind of message has come to us. It's come to us in the gospel, and it comes to us in the very words of Paul here, where he says, I want you to know that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, unless we see this as a concrete reality and are arrested by it, just the same way as the people of faith in uh, Hebrews 11 were arrested by it, we'll never know it. It will never be our experience unless we first see it and embrace it. We have to be persuaded that God offers this intimacy with Christ to every single one of us. But not only did these people see these things, the writer of Hebrews says they welcomed them. In other words, the moment they saw these promises from God... They welcomed them. They embraced them. They wanted to lay hold of them. They wanted to to, to, to see this, this new desire that was coming forth in their hearts fulfilled. I mean, Jesus says the same thing about true disciples. He says, blessed are those who what? Who hunger and thirst. In other words, the reality of welcoming something is hungering and thirsting for it. Really wanting it. It's not just a matter of seeing the promise of God. It's beginning to say, I want that promise of God fulfilled in my life. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on and he says, they confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And, And really, this is the point at which they began to act, because this is what they did. They were willing to cut loose the relationships, the bonds of home, whatever it happened to be, safety, security, well-being, in order to do what God wanted to do and embrace his promise to them. And so it was, Abram, Abraham is sitting around in Haran and he gets the word of the God, the word of God, he's going to make a great nation of him, but somewhere else. And what does he do? He picks up his family, lock, stock and barrel and goes out not knowing where he's going. It's kind of like pack your, pack your kids in the 1940 Ford and head out. Where? I don't know where. But that's precisely what he did. He acted. He didn't know where it was going to lead, necessarily, beyond what God had already told him. Noah did the same thing. Right? The word comes to Noah, build an ark. It hasn't rained Ever. okay. so he begins to build an ark separates himself from his, his friends and his, uh, those who live in the same area they ridicule him for what a hundred years while he's building this thing and he was willing to separate himself from that which seemed so important to life in order to embrace the promise of God and if we fail to act on God's promise to us that we can have a deeper, richer, more joyous relationship with Christ by faith, we will not have it. We have to act on that promise just as surely as Noah and Abram and Joseph and all the rest acted on God's promises to them. Now this sequence of, of seeing and of welcoming and of acting is not it's not new to us. We do it all the time. Okay? You see a car. You like the car. You want the car. You buy the car. Okay? See, desire, act. We do it all the time in life. And what we do in the material world also needs to be done in the spiritual realm as well. And the first thing we need to do is to keep this, this promise of God fresh before our eyes. I don't know about you, but the moment I close the book, my mind can go somewhere else and I can forget the promise that I just read. But the promise is to have this kind of intimacy with God, to know him more dearly and nearly, as a hymn writer put it is a reality. And there are many scriptures that that refer to it. And keeping those before our eyes, by meditating on them, by memorizing them, by reading them on a regular basis. In other words, if you really want something, keep it fresh in your mind. If you're shopping for cars, how much time do you spend on the internet looking for it? If you're looking for a new vacuum cleaner or anything else, it's it's, it's in your mind all the time. And so it is with spiritual things of God. They must be kept before our mind's eye. Another way of doing it is simply to pick up the biographies of of Christian men and women. Who, when they heard the promises of God, they had to work that out too. See how they did it. Maybe it inspires you to read about David Brainerd or or Charles Wesley or or, um, any of a number of others. But above all, the thing that we have to keep before ourselves is that this is a matter of personal relationship. It is a matter of developing deep intimacy with a person. You know how hard that is? It's hard. And it makes it even harder when that relationship goes on for a long period of time. There's a, uh, there's a very common saying that says, a familiarity breeds contempt. Well, I, you know, that's a little strong sometimes, I think. But it can breed a dullness, can't it? And I think it's true that even in our relationship with Jesus Christ, what was once meaningful and vital and immediate and regular grows dull because we haven't attended to it because we have forgotten the value of it because we've begun to take it for granted and it's not as though Jesus is any less precious but our own estimation of him becomes dull let me mention two other things very briefly first but if Christ is in our hearts, Scripture tells us there are certain things that can't be. Right? Uh, there's no argument here, really. If, if, if we're going to love Christ with our whole heart, mind, and soul, you can't love the world and look for your satisfaction there, too. All right? It just, it just doesn't go together. That's why Paul's talking about Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. That word dwell doesn't mean come and visit for a little while. It means to, to, to make oneself comfortable and at home as if you're a family member. That's the kind of intimacy that Paul is talking about here. And Until the Spirit controls our lives to such a degree that we're willing to let loose of anything the Spirit doesn't want to have in there, this kind of intimacy becomes almost impossible. The other is simply this, that we can't do this unless God grants it, unless he enables it. But this is precisely Paul's point. And he says, God will, quote, grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That's our hope. That's the certainty. That this prayer of Paul is God's will and desire for us. That is what we can take to the bank. That is what we count on. That is what we act on. That is what we hope in. Those of you who are of uh, my generation or thereabouts may remember a a booklet by Robert Munger called My Heart, Christ's Home. Anybody remember that? Campus Crusade put it out, right? And, uh, well, you know, it pictures the Christian life as a house. Right? And, uh, and Christ comes to that house and, and uh, he, he goes from room to room. He goes into the, he goes into the, uh, uh, the, the library, which is the, the mind, and he finds all this trash. Well, he's, he's quick to get rid of it and replace it with truth, with his word, with uh, that which is wholesome and good. And he goes into the dining room and he finds all these worldly appetites, all these lusts, these things, and he just begins to clear it out. And then he moves on into the, uh, the living room of fellowship and he finds all these friends that are just, you know, uh, you know don't, these friends are not quite the same as they used to be. And you need to be very careful, and the activities that you're involved in with these friends may be uh, detrimental. Then he goes to the workshop where uh, the things of significance ought to be made, but instead, you know, you're just kind of making toys and playing around. And, and then he goes into the closet. And the closet, of course, is that place where all the hidden sins are kept. You know, nobody you just kind of close the door, make sure that, you know, nobody knows they're really there. And, and he goes like that throughout the entire house until once it's all swept in an order and it's cleared out, he moves in. Well... When Jesus enters the house of our hearts, he does that the moment he saves us. And at the same time, he's not going to live there in comfort and in all of his fullness until that stuff gets rooted out. And it is precisely that that is the overarching point of Paul's prayer. I want you to deal with sin and temptation and the and the. Live the right kind of life by the power of God which alone is available to you as you understand, embrace, and live in light of God's love for you. It is powerful and it changes you. Brethren, that's our hope and that will be the very thing that we look at next week. Let's pray. Our Father, it's, uh, when we listen to a text like this, we um, we're overwhelmed in, in many respects by what we don't have, what we don't experience, and yet the enormity of what you say you want to do with us is uh, is really quite wonderful. And I pray that you would uh, help us to push away from our minds any doubts, our hearts any fears and from our wills, any unwillingness to embrace this as much as we possibly can, and to allow you to have your way with us in this regard, so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, that that intimacy might be uh, more full-orbed than our experience is now. Not simply so that we can enjoy it, but so that others might see, so that the needy and the weak and the hurting might be confronted by a life that is, that is just really powerfully lived to Jesus Christ's glory and want it. Do that, Father. We want to we have opportunity to share and we want to have an integrity of life and lifestyle that makes people want to know you, want to know what's different about us. Grant us these things, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.